Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. During the next few weeks, I'm going to bring you sermons based on Lenten themes as we move toward Easter. Although especially appropriate during Lent, these stories are valuable year-round. This week I'm going to share with you two related readings, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, that present what I think is one of the most interesting and rich stories in the Bible, the story of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent on a pole in the wilderness. And that's why I've titled this sermon, Snake on a Stick. Our first reading is from Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, the Israelites set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. The second reading is John three thirteen to 15 No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here end the readings. Our lumbering tour bus lurched its way up a steep rutted gravel road toward the summit of Mount Nebo in Jordan. Our crew of American pilgrims debarked in a paved parking lot and began our trek up a path toward a newly built church several hundred yards further up the hill. The church was built on the site of an ancient Byzantine church. A playful group of neatly uniformed Arab girls on a school outing flashed smiles at us as they sprinted past, racing each other up the hill and far outdistancing their teachers. One group stopped and took giggling selfies with us. As we neared the summit, our guide led us out of the arid noonday heat into the cool stone building that's been erected over the archaeological dig of the original church. In addition to being a place of worship, the modern chapel protects and preserves the original Byzantine mosaic floor that had been discovered in 1933. The floor dates back to the second half of the 4th century and commemorates the death of Moses on the mount, which is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Early Christians traveled here to worship and honor their history. We exited the east end of the chapel onto an expansive flagstone patio 
from which we were treated to a breathtaking view of the Jordan Valley, with the distant city of Jericho hanging in the yellow haze. On the desert floor in the distance, we could make out a dark green strip that sighted the Jordan River. The contrast of the barren wilderness with the fertile banks of the Jordan make clear why the Israelites, after years of wandering, saw this as the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. On the spot where we stood was where they got their first glimpse of this land of promise. It was the same spot, thousands of years later, that Martin Luther King referred to in his last sermon when he said, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. Interposed between us and the sweeping desert panorama stood a tall serpentine cross sculpture created by the Italian artist Gian Paolo Fantini. I recognize this twisted bronze work as representation of the story of Moses raising the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness to protect the Israelites from the bites of poisonous snakes, and John's use of that image to describe Christ on the cross. That one mental snapshot of the promised land in the midst of the wilderness, with a serpentine sculpture in the foreground, summed up for me the sweeping story of the Old and New Testaments. To explain, let me go back to the story of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites under the leadership of Moses, as it's found in the book of Numbers. Moses' followers make the mistake of complaining about Moses and God for leading them into this, pardon the expression, God-forsaken wilderness. They whined, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Well, it's not exactly true that there is no food. God has been daily sending them manna so that they can survive. But they've grown tired of this miserable food. They long for the fresh fruits and vegetables that they had in Egypt. The Israelites were known for their complaining, which was a sign of their lack of gratitude to God for saving them from slavery in Egypt. It, it was this ingratitude that kept them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, this was not the first time the people got into trouble with God on this trip. The people completed, repeatedly complain and rebel against Moses. God's anger is kindled by this rebellion, and God sends a plague, inflicts Miriam with leprosy, and more than once asserts that this complaining generation will die out before Canaan is reached. It's as if God is picking off the older generation a little bit at a time. Moses admits as much when he urges God not to kill them all at once. As he often does, God gets angry with the people. The God of the Old Testament sometimes has a short fuse. When God gets angry, he imposes some consequences. This time the consequence is particularly unpleasant. He sends poisonous snakes who fatally bite many of the people. They confess their sin of speaking out against the Lord, 
who sends a peculiar remedy. Moses is to fashion a golden serpent on the end of a staff, and when someone is bitten by a snake, they just have to look at it, and they'll be saved. The serpent on the staff becomes a symbol of salvation and healing. Millennia later, the Gospel writer John seizes upon this image and applies it to Jesus. He compares Jesus being lifted up on the cross to Moses' serpent. When we look at the image of Jesus on the cross, we are saved, not from snakebite, but from death itself. Looking at Jesus on the cross becomes a means of resurrection to eternal life. Looking at the cross is our act of faith and contrition. The Easter hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, is a reminder for us to look at the cross. The only difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament versions of this story is that Moses' staff is morphed into a cross. And ironically, Jesus becomes the reminder of our sin. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As an aside, I find it interesting that the logo of the American Medical Association pictures a serpent wrapped around a stick. And although my research indicates that the logos of the AMA and the American Cancer Society, which pictures a snake on a sword, come from Greek mythology, I can't help but think that the story of Moses in the wilderness would be a more appropriate symbol of healing for both of these medical organizations who dedicate themselves to healing. But let's get back to the Israelites. We have to understand what they've been through to really appreciate what this story can mean for us. We can only imagine the many hardships they experience wandering around the desert for 40 years. Many of them succumbed and died along the way. Today's story makes it clear that they did not all die of natural causes. They died as a consequence of disobeying God. Notice that even after the people beg God for forgiveness, he does not take the snakes away. They are still being bitten. But if they look at the serpent, they at least don't die. They can be cured. The snake on a stick cure is similar to the way we cure venomous snake bites today. If you're bitten by a snake today, if you're lucky enough to be near a place where you can receive medical attention, you will have an anti-venom administered to you. Anti-venom is currently developed through the process of milking venomous animals, in this case snakes, concentrating the venom, inoculating animals, and isolating an antibodies found in their plasma. Then those antibodies are administered to the bite victim to fight off the toxin. Even so, seven to 8,000 people die of snake bite every year. But what has that got to do with us? Most of us are unlikely to suffer a little literal life-threatening snake bite. 
We all, however, are threatened by our own toxic actions and attitudes that can harm us. We act in ways that are self-destructive or harmful to others. Our sins and shortcomings are something that we don't like to face. Denial of our shortcomings, weaknesses or flaws or sins is easier and less painful than confronting them. Part of my pastoral training involved completing a course in clinical pastoral education. And it's required because of pastoral duties often include counseling, and that requires some self-awareness. As part of this training, we were required to undergo a course of psychotherapy. That was the most painful experience of my life. My weekly sessions with a stern German psychotherapist named Willie consisted mainly of him confronting me with my emotional issues and weaknesses. One day, when we were discussing my motivations for becoming a pastor, he said, You are a narcissist. You aren't in this to help others. You just want to feed your own ego. You want to tell people your story, not to listen to theirs. I don't think that anyone has ever said anything that has stung or bitten me more deeply. I always thought that I was a nice guy like Al Franken's self-help guru that he played on Saturday Night Live used to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Maybe. At first I was offended at what my psychotherapist said. Who was he to judge me? I even got to the point of thinking he was the one with the problem. And my first response was anger. I decided that I would just ignore what he said and move on with my life. Had I continued along that path, I would have experienced little growth, and this part of my training would have been worthless. Truth hurts. Fortunately, however, the truth is also hard to avoid. It's hard to ignore it when snakes are nipping at your ankles. Willie's words kept me awake night after night. Another part of the training that I was undergoing was to visit nursing home residents and listen to their life stories. Suddenly, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Willie was right. I spent more time talking than listening in my sessions. I had forgotten what a hospice training nurse once said when she was asked what you should say to a dying person. Her answer? As little as possible. But my pride was still hurt. But I continued consciously to hold back when I was tempted to share a personal anecdote instead of listening to the rich stories that the people I visited had to offer. An amazing thing began to happen. Almost immediately, they opened up and shared personal stories from the distant past like they never had before. I listened. I was moved. I learned. I was being healed. I was healed in a way that I probably wouldn't have experienced if Willie hadn't held out that snake on a stick up in front of me. In the process, I came not only a better listener, but a better conversationalist. When I did share personal stories, they were more relevant 
Now, I'm not totally healed. I still like to listen to my own stories. My wife has learned to hold up her hand in front of me when I'm dominating a conversation. Her upraised palm is my new snake on a stick. See, when we ignore our personal weaknesses, we tend to find ourselves repeating mistakes and leading unfulfilled lives. The secret of self-improvement is to discover our fallibilities and either correct them or find a way to turn them into strengths. It's always considered best to recognize our shortcomings ourselves before someone else points them out, which can sometimes be embarrassing for us, or is in my case really painful. No one in this world is perfect, but we can try to improve ourselves and overcome our shortcomings as soon as we realize them. But we have to realize them. You might consider a little exercise to encourage some self-growth. Find a time when you can sit alone and make a list of your shortcomings and your strengths. I've added strengths because it's easy to get too negative about yourself and just give up otherwise. But pick one of your most serious shortcomings and spend some time thinking about it. Think about the last time you displayed it. Who did you hurt? Did you hurt yourself? You might ask a trusted friend if they witnessed this trait in you. Then strategize how you can use your strengths to overcome your weakness. Don't beat yourself up. Be gentle. But keep your eye on the snake on the stick. And then watch for the signs of healing. Confronting our sins and weaknesses applies on a communal as well as personal level. The story of the Israelites, after all, is a story of the people as a whole. I've noticed a disturbing trend in our own culture as of late. Instead of confronting our shortcomings as a people, we're actively trying to deny them. There are attempts being made to suppress the teaching or even discussion of anything that casts a bad light on our nation and on our people. That is denial, pure and simple. If we cannot confront our weaknesses, how can we ever heal our wounds? If we refused to look our sins past and present in the eye, how will we ever reach the promised land? We will continue to wander aimlessly in the wilderness. And remember, despite their disobedience and their trials in the desert, the Israelites did reach the promised land. Each of us, of each generation, will have our own wilderness to wander. But if we look to the cross, we will be rescued. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you on your Lenten journey. May God look upon you with love and grant you peace.